This morning, we are going to be in Romans chapter 4. We are going through our study of the book of Romans. And uh, we finished chapter 3 last week. We're going to cover chapter 4 this week. And um, just, uh, we're, again, I said this last week, we're kind of at the point now where we sort of, we need to go through a quick review of what we've done um, just so we can kind of all be on the same page when we start. And so when Paul starts, starts out the letter, he gives his, his quick context. Um, he talks about being a servant of Jesus Christ who is set apart for the gospel of God. He kind of throws this word gospel out there. And that word means good news. So he was set apart for this good news. And then in verses 8 through 17, he goes to kind of explain and, and flesh out what this good news is. And he says he's not ashamed of it because it is the power for salvation to all who believe. And so we're kind of left then with two natural questions, okay? If it is the power of salvation, the power to save, who needs saving and what do they need saving from? That's kind of the two questions that we're left with. And so he goes on to explain that there's three kinds of people that need saving. And um, the, the kind of the first group is the ungodly. And, you know, you can kind of see it. We do the same thing. Um, he talks about the ungodly and you can see the Jews sitting there like, yes, preach it on, right? And then he goes and he talks in chapter two, verses one through 16, he talks about um, kind of the educated moralist, I guess as I call it, the person who knows right from wrong, they try to do good, but it's, it's not for the glory of God. It's kind of doing good for the sake of doing good. But then this third group is the Jews, God's own people. He says that they are just as deserving of God's wrath as the first two groups of people he talked about. And so what he essentially says is that everyone deserves God's wrath. Well, then we come to see why do we all deserve God's wrath? It's because none of us are good. We are not righteous. We cannot uphold the law in any way. But God counts us righteous through faith in him, through faith in his son who did uphold the law. And so he goes here in chapter four to kind of give this biblical Old Testament example that they all would have been very familiar with um, he, he starts talking about Abraham. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to read chapter four right here, and then we're going to pray over it, and we're going to go into our message. Um, I encourage you to please um, have your, your Bibles out, whether that's a paper copy or maybe on your phone. Um, have the word in front of you so that you can read it for yourself. This is Romans chapter four, starting in verse one. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. 
Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to read it, to hear it, to learn from it and be taught it by your Holy Spirit. I pray this morning that you would protect it, that you would open our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear and understand in truth, not just what our senses or our sensibilities want it to say, but what it actually says, that we will see your truth for itself. Again, protect your word. May it give glory and honor to you as we learn from it, as we hear from you. And I pray that you would spread throughout this place and you would awaken our hearts that we would continue to grow closer to you through the knowledge of your word. In your name we pray, amen. So Abraham, you know, he's the father of the Jews. They all would have been very, very familiar with Abraham. They would have considered themselves um, or considered him sort of their, their ancestor. And um, they, because Abraham was given a seal of the covenant, which was circumcision, the Jews considered circumcision to be very, very important. They considered it so important that they referred to themselves as the circumcision, meaning they were the people that were cut apart from the world or set apart from the world for the sake of being God's chosen people. Now, I want you to think about that. That may have started well-intentioned, 
But how quickly will that lead to arrogance? Because before you even realize it in your mind, I mean, I know me, I, I would assume y'all are the same way. We're automatically gonna start rationalizing, well, it must have been something I did that made him choose me. But Paul's kind of been um, tearing that theory apart and he continues by giving this example through Abraham who they would have considered, I mean, he was the top dog in, in, in the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith. They would have seen him as almost um, like, you know, a little bit more than a man. Like he was, he was the guy. They strive to be just like Abraham. And so we'll look at what Paul has to say. Verse one, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That phrase that's in quotations, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness is directly from Genesis 15 verse six where um, God gives him the promise and it says Abraham believed and therefore it was counted to him as righteousness. So we, we see right here that all of the things Abraham was promised were not promised to him because of something that he did. He didn't, he didn't go into covenant with God. He wasn't given the promise that uh, he will be the father of many nations. And we'll look at that in just a minute. He wasn't given that promise because he was this really good guy who you know, fulfilled the law and did everything that he was supposed to do. I mean, look at the life of Abraham. Abraham was a guy that first of all, when God called him, he was living in a pagan nation worshiping a pagan God. It wasn't like, you know, he, he proclaimed his faith in God and then God called him. No, he was in Ur, which is in, in Chaldea, which was, they worshiped the moon God. So he was from a pagan family living in a pagan country. And then we see that when God calls him, he listens, he, he takes his family and all that he has where God calls him to go. But then we see from that point, he's still not perfect. He's constantly bargaining with God. There's several instances where God tells him something or shows him something and Abraham goes, well, I'll tell you what, do this so I can know you're telling the truth and then I'll know. And so God does it and he goes, okay, no, 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 wait, now do this. And he does that many times. Then there's many instances where God tells him something and his first response, the first thing immediately out of his mouth is, but what about, or what can I do if he's constantly trying to make excuses and argue back with God? He's a man that not once but twice, he threw his wife under the bus. There's a, a, a foreign rulers. First was, it was Pharaoh in Egypt. And then it was King Abimelech who saw his wife, Sarah, who was very beautiful. They, they wanted her, they, they wanted to pursue her. And so he had his servants or, or even he himself told those kings that she was his sister so that they would take her and do what they wanted, but they wouldn't kill him to get him out of the way. And then he sleeps with his servant Hagar to produce an heir because Sarah was barren and she tells him, okay, you know what? You need an heir, go sleep with your servant. And he listened. 
I mean, look, I'm dumb, but come on. I mean, this was not a man that you really want to follow his actions. You couldn't really make an argument that he was justified through the law because he most certainly did not follow it. But it was counted to him as righteousness because he believed. And that word believed, the, the Hebrew verb that we've translated to believed actually means to be certain or to be totally confident, they would have had this idea of leaning against something with your entire weight. Okay, so I don't have faith to lean against this podium with my entire weight. But if I went over to the wall somewhere, I wouldn't feel uncomfortable about leaning up against the wall. I don't feel uncomfortable about sitting in one of these chairs. No, if I sat down and it busted, which will probably happen one day, I won't feel as comfortable. But it's this idea of leaning against something with your entire weight. That's probably kind of the mindset, the thought process that they would have had when they heard this word believed. Verse four, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So if you're working for something, you're going to get out of it what you earn, what you deserve. I mean, this is what we do in our jobs every day. You know, if you sign a contract for a job, you're supposed to make $50,000 that year and you do your job as you're supposed to, you'll make $50,000. Okay, I've never seen an employer get to the end of the year and go, I know you worked for 50,000, but just because I feel like it, I'm gonna give you another 50,000. If that's happened to you, come talk to me because I need to apply for a job. Anyways, but that's not how that works. You get what you earn if you're working for it. But then it says to the one who does not work. That, we don't like that term because in America, you know, it's this American dream. If you want anything, you work for it. You go after it. And that's not wrong. But it, you know, it, in my mind, when I first read this, I was like, so is he talking about people who just sit around and be lazy? They're the ones that are justified? But no, that's not what it means. It says to him who understands. It means to him who understands he cannot earn his justification, but believes that God can provide him that justification. It will be counted to him as righteousness because it says in him who justifies the ungodly. I hope that word ungodly stuck out to you. Remember that first group of people that we said the Jews probably would have been standing around like, yeah, yeah. Go get them. And we did the same thing when we read it. It says he justifies the ungodly. It's almost like God can justify really bad people because none of us are really bad people. But that's who God justifies, the ungodly. And then it says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So verses seven and eight right there are a quotation directly from a beautiful Psalm, Psalm 32, verses one through two. And so we see in these verses that he brings up now this, 
Second example of righteousness through faith, which is King David. You all know about King David. He was the leader of Israel. Israel was very prosperous under his reign. And then he's on his rooftop one day. He sees this beautiful woman bathing. He lusts after her and has his servants go get her. And he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant with his child. And so he finds out that She's married, but not only is she married, she is married to one of his most successful and most faithful generals, a man named Uriah. So he kind of has this plan to cover it up, to get Uriah to come home from the battle to sleep with her so the child will look like it's her child. But Uriah, being so faithful to his men, refuses to do that. He refuses to sleep with her because his men are at war. They are away from their wives. And so therefore he doesn't feel like he can be with his wife. And so instead what David does is he puts Uriah on the front lines knowing he will be killed quickly and he is. And then he takes Bathsheba for himself. So not only is he guilty of adultery, but he is guilty of murder. And so he's bringing up this this second account of David to show this. And I'm gonna take us to Psalm 51 now. This is another very beautiful psalm. And this is kind of, um, this is David's confession and also his statement of his faith. And this was, if, if you'll see the subheading, if your Bible has it, it says to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had been with Bathsheba. So this is after Nathan had come to him giving him this word from the Lord that God knows what he did and there will be a punishment, there will be a discipline. And I want us to look at verses one through five, which is his confession, and then verses nine through 17. So have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That last sentence we just read was actually, we, we covered it last week. It was quoted last week in Romans 3 verse 4. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me? So we see this beautiful confession of him knowing his sin, him knowing what a state he's in. And if you know anything about David, when David did these things, he did not offer a sacrifice to God under the the Mosaic law, which was given to them. For their sins, they were supposed to offer sacrifices and these these, um, sacrifices would be lifted up to God by the priests and therefore because of that and through that, their sins would be atoned for, their sins would be covered. But David actually never offered a sacrifice because under the Mosaic law, there was no sacrifice for adultery or for murder. They were to immediately be stoned. And so he offers no sacrifice. He's in this totally hopeless place where he knows what he is deserving of. But look at the confidence and the certainty. Look at how he is leaning all of his weight up against God, his savior in verses nine through 17. He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He says, I have no sacrifice. I have no offering. I know that. But justify me anyways, because you're good. He appeals to the love and the mercy of God. He leans against him with his entire weight, knowing that there is nothing he can do, that under the law, he is to be put to death but he leans upon the mercy and love and steadfastness of God. <clears throat> and so we continue in verse nine, it says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. <clears throat> the Jews were holding on to this idea of circumcision being what justified them. We've read about that excuse me, for several chapters now. And we even looked back at the passage in Acts 15 where the Pharisees and the Judaizers were trying to tell the Gentiles after they had been saved that they were supposed to have faith, but along with that, they were supposed to follow the law and become circumcised or they weren't really Christians. They weren't really justified. And we saw in that, that passage that Peter dispels that theory and he says, no, it is for the circumcised and the uncircumcised alike. He justifies all who call on his name. And then Paul takes it back to Abraham and he says, you know, you're banking on circumcision, but this verse that I just brought up where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Was he circumcised before that happened or after? He was circumcised after. He was not circumcised in, in Genesis 15 verse six when it says Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. He hadn't followed the law, but he believed in the power of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then in verse 12, he continues and he says, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was uncircumcised. So he said, he is our father in faith, both to the uncircumcised who believe and to those who are circumcised, but they have to believe too. He says, you can't just be circumcised and think you're good. It is a seal of the promise. It is not the promise itself. It's a symbol. And so verse 13, he says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He says, if the adherents of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. He says, if that's the case, faith is foolishness. It's dumb. It makes no sense. If you can follow the law, if you can justify yourself through following the law, I need you to know that you are wasting your time by being here right now. You're wasting your time. You don't need God. You don't need salvation. You can do it yourself. So what are you here for? You might as well go home. Beat the lunch crowd. And then he says, for the law brings wrath. And we talked last week about how the law is a mirror. It is not for us to follow, it is to show us how short we fall. And then he says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Parents, maybe you have small children or your children are older now, but just imagine when they were younger. If your kid goes out and rolls around in the mud and the dirt and gets their clothes disgusting, but you never told them that they weren't supposed to do that. You never brought it up. Granted, if I was a parent, out of my frustration, I would still probably get a little bit upset. But do you really have a right to get upset at your kids for doing something you didn't tell them not to do? Are you justified in punishing them when you didn't tell them not to get their clothes dirty? You're not. There was no law, therefore there can be no discipline. But if you looked at them and you said, do not go outside and roll around in the mud. And they said, okay, and turned around and ran out the door. Okay, I never did that, but I was the one, like my mom would tell me not to touch stuff and I'd be like, and I got spanked a lot and I deserved it and it's good. But if she wouldn't have told me that, she wouldn't have been able to do anything. But she did and therefore she was able to do something. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law brings wrath. It does not bring perfection. And he says in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Abraham had faith in the God that created the world from nothing, that delivered his own son, raised his own son from the dead. You know, there's an interesting thing about faith. Some people have this misconception that having faith means you just believe everything somebody says. And sometimes it's especially heightened if that man is a preacher. If the preacher says it, then it's true. Well, that's not how that works. There's a difference in having faith and being gullible. There's a huge difference. The thing about faith is you have to have an understanding of what you have faith in. You have to know whether that thing is trustworthy of your faith or not. 
And this thing says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. If God can do that, is he trustworthy? Has he earned our faith? In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so your offspring, so shall your offspring be. In hope, he believed against hope. That, that phrase, maybe you know that phrase, but that phrase has always kind of confused me, but essentially what it means is he hoped against all evidence. There was evidence against him telling him that the promises of God probably won't come true. The promise that he would be the father of many nations, that he will have countless offspring. And then it tells in this, this next verse, verse 19, why or, or what that evidence was. And this verse is not meant to be funny, but it kind of makes me laugh. It says, he did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. It's not meant to be funny, but it cracks me up because Paul is pretty much saying, y'all, he was old as dirt. Like this guy was so old, you could probably iron him and he would still be really wrinkly. Like this was an old guy and Sarah was not far behind him. And now God is telling him they're gonna have a baby. His sensibilities would have told him probably not gonna happen. But it says he did not weaken in faith. And then it says in verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. There's that, that phrase that we said was kind of what believed in the Hebrew meant, fully convinced, totally confident. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And then there's these beautiful words, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Things didn't look good for Abraham. Things didn't look like they made a lot of sense but he did not weaken in his faith. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God. When it says that, it's talking about these things that, that the enemy was throwing at him all the time. Dude, you're 100. Your wife couldn't have kids when she was 30. Why is she gonna have kids now? All these things that on a daily basis were being thrown against him, it says no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I wanna read, um, I just wanna read something to you real quick. This is something that I thought of this week and I kind of did some research into it and it, it was so encouraging to me. It kind of blew my mind a little bit, honestly, but I just wanna give you another kind of more I guess, modern day example of this faith, this unwavering faith. And most of you will probably know this name, even if you don't know much about it, you'll be familiar with the name. This is about a lady named Corey Ten Boom. Okay, she was a Holocaust survivor. And I just wanna read you a little bit about her life real quick. 
Corey Ten Boom was born on April 15th, 1892 to a working class family in, Ans in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Named after her mother Cornelia, but known as Corey all her life, she was the youngest child of Casper Ten Boom, a jeweler and watchmaker. She trained to be a watchmaker herself, and in 1922, she became the first woman to be licensed as a watchmaker in the Netherlands. Over the next decade, in addition to working in her father's shop, she established a youth club for teenage girls, which provided religious instruction and classes in the performing arts, sewing, and handicrafts. She and her family were Calvinist Christians in the Dutch Reformed Church, and their faith inspired them to serve their society, which they did by offering shelter, food, and money to those who were in need. In May 1940, the Germans invaded the Netherlands, and one of their restrictions was the banning of the youth club. Then in May 1942, a well-dressed woman came to the Ten Booms with a suitcase in hand and told them that she was a Jew. Her husband had been arrested several months earlier. Her son had gone into hiding, and occupation authorities had recently visited her, so she was afraid to go back home. She heard that the Ten Booms had previously helped their Jewish neighbors, a family named the Wiles, and asked if they could help her too. Their father, Casper, readily agreed that she could stay with them, even though the police headquarters were only half a block away. Thus, the Ten Booms created what is famously known as the hiding place. Corey and her sister Betsy opened their home to Jewish refugees and members of the resistance movement, and as a result, they were sought after by the Gestapo and its Dutch counterpart. The secret room they had was in Corey's bedroom behind a false wall and could hold up to six people. A ventilation system was installed for the occupants, and a buzzer could be heard in the house to warn the refugees to get into the room as quickly as possible during security sweeps through the neighborhood. They had plenty of room, but wartime shortages meant that food was scarce. Every non-Jewish Dutch person had received a ration card, the requirement for obtaining weekly food coupons. Through her charitable work, Ten Boom knew many people in Harlem, which was a city close to Amsterdam, and remembered a family with a disabled daughter whose father was a civil servant and was now in charge of the local ration card office. She went to his house one evening, and when he asked how many ration cards she needed, she said, I opened my mouth to say five, but the number that unexpectedly and astonishingly came out instead was 100. He gave them to her and she provided cards to every Jew she met. The refugee work which Ten Boom and her sister did became known by the Dutch resistance, which sent an architect to the Ten Boom house to build an even larger and better room adjacent to the original for the Jews who were in hiding. And he also created a better alert system that could be used to warn the refugees when the security sweeps were coming through. On February 28, 1944, a Dutch informant named Jan Vogel told the Nazis about the Ten Booms work. And at around 12.30 p.m. of that day, the Nazis arrested the entire Ten Boom family. They were sent to Shevingen Prison when resistance materials and extra ration cards were found at the home. Her family members, Nolly and Willem, were released immediately, along with her nephew, Peter Van Warden. Her father, Casper, died 10 days later. The group of six people hidden in the ten booms, made up of both Jews and resistance workers, remained undiscovered. Corey received a letter one day in prison that said, quote, all the watches in your cabinet are safe meaning that the refugees had managed to successfully escape.
Four days after the raid, resistance workers transferred them to other locations. Altogether, the Gestapo arrested some 30 people who were in the Ten Boom home that day. Corey was initially held in solitary confinement. After three months there, she was taken to her first hearing. At her trial, Ten Boom spoke about her work with the mentally disabled. A Nazi lieutenant scoffed because the Nazis had been killing the mentally disabled individuals for years in accordance with their eugenics policies. Ten Boom defended her work by saying that in the eyes of God, a mentally disabled person might be, might be more valuable, quote, than a watchmaker or a lieutenant. Corey and her sister Betsy were sent from Shevingen to another prison, a political concentration camp known as Camp Vut, and finally to the Ravensbrück concentration camp, a woman's labor camp in Germany. There they held worship services after the hard days at work by using a Bible that they had managed to smuggle in. While they were imprisoned at Ravensbrück, Betsy and her sister Corey began to discuss plans for finding a place of healing after the war. Betsy's health continued to deteriorate, but as it was, she one day looked up in Corey and said, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. A couple of days later, she died on December 16, 1944, at the age of 59. 15 days after her death, Corey was released, and afterwards she was told that her release was because of a clerical error and that a week later, all the women in her age group were sent to the gas chambers. Corey Ten Boom then became very famous for the work that she had done in the Dutch resistance to the Nazis. Um, she won several uh, different types of medals, courage and bravery medals from organizations around the world. She went on to speak um, on five different continents. She wrote countless books um, the famous of which was called The Hiding Place. And then she died peacefully on April 15th, 1983, on her 91st birthday. She went through so much persecution, heartache. I mean, she, she lost her father. She lost her sister just two weeks before she was released and they were making plans to get out and, and carry on life together. but she never wavered. Towards the end of her life, she said, I have experienced his presence in the deepest, darkest hell that men can create. I have tested the promises of God and believe me, you can count on them. The faith of Abraham, of David, of the disciples of martyrs throughout the century of Corey Ten Boom was not steadfast because of anything in and of themselves. It wasn't because they were just these uniquely strong people that were so much different than us. It was because they put all of their weight up against the rock of ages. It was because when life was pushing them down, the hand of God was holding them up. Simple church, faith, steadfast faith is not found in any strength that you have. It is found in the strength of the source of your faith.
So if you're living trying to do it yourself, if you are trying to follow the law to the best of your ability, there's nothing wrong with trying to honor God with your actions, your words, your thoughts. We should, the law helps us do that, but it cannot justify us. It cannot make us right before a perfect and holy God. But when we put all of our weight up against him, it is counted to us as righteousness. Father, thank you for your word, this word that even through heartache and through persecution and even when staring death right in the face, it gives us an unbelievable anchor. It gives us something to hold on to that can never be shaken. It can never waver. You continue to prove your steadfast love, your character to us every day. So I pray that as we go throughout our lives, we would be totally certain. We would lean all of our weight up against you knowing that you will uphold us according to your promises. You gave it to Abraham and you, you upheld him and you carried out that promise for him and you will do the same for us. I pray that we will live that way not counting on ourselves, but on your everlasting love and mercy and character. We pray these things in your name, amen.